I had a lot of fun my sophomore year in college. Had a, a couple of great roommates, both who were named Paul. And uh, we just enjoyed practical joking and having a good time. And uh, one of the things we loved to do was answer the phone in kind of bizarre ways. And probably more sophomores in high school should have been doing it than sophomores in college. But I was really encouraged because after the second service, uh, a very uh, you know, mature and uh, appropriate woman came up to me afterwards and said, hey, can I tell you some of the things I used to do when I was in college too? And it was great. But anyway, so one day uh, I answered the phone. I said, hello, Yankee Stadium, second base, you know, which is sort of corny there. But, uh, and I hear... Paul Schmidt, please. And I'm like, oh my goodness, it's his uncle Harvey. And for those of you who don't know, Harvey Schmidt wrote the the music to the musical The Fantastics. And so here I have just insulted like this famous guy. And I don't think he ever would want to call again, or at least he hoped somebody else would answer the phone when he called. So it's kind of fun, you know, and, and cheesy and that sort of thing. But it got better than this. And, and this was sort of the, the next one was like a dream come true for a, a kind of a semi-nerdy guy like me. So the phone rings and I see, you know, hello. And, and the other end, the guy says, is Paul there? And I said, which one? And he says, well, I don't know his last name, but it begins with S. And I'm just smiling. I said, which one? And I'm sitting there saying, please, please, please let this next thing happen. He says, you're not going to believe this, but I know his middle name. It's Eric. And I said, doesn't help. And uh, he just was like, oh my goodness, two Paul Eric S's in the same room. And I'm just like, yes, this is great. He says, hey, can you help me out? What's, you know, give me some description. I said, okay, you want the one with straight hair or the one with curly hair? And he says, I want the one with straight hair. And I said, no, I'm sorry, he's not here. Can I take a message? So he gives me the message, you know, and and I write it down and all that sort of thing. And we're about to hang up and he says, hey, just out of curiosity, is the the one with curly hair there? And I said, no, he's not here either. And the guy must have wanted to kill me, but it was fun. And, you know, we had a a good good sort of time with that. At least I did. Um, But that's the kind of room that I lived in. And we just had fun goofing around and doing different things. And that became the foundation of, of a real close relationship uh, with one another, and especially curly-haired Paul and I. Uh, just, you know, even to this day, we keep in touch with one another and enjoy an ongoing friendship. And uh, one day, he and I were having a, um, shall we say, discussion. And uh, I was using my great uh, wit and intellectual prowess to show my superiority in this you know, discussion slash argument here. And we finished and I was just basking in the glow of my victory over Paul in this, whatever it was. Now, he is about twice as brilliant as I am, so obviously I don't think I had actually won the argument, but at least I thought I did. So I'm sitting there kind of basking in the glow of my victory and uh, three, four, five minutes later, Paul just quietly says, he says, you know, Clay... The fact that you get the last word in an argument doesn't mean you've won, and it doesn't mean you've convinced the other guy. And I was like, ooh, there we go. He got me, you know. And it was just kind of, he found that arrogance, you know, deep down inside and just probed and just went bing, zing right there. And I think if it had been anybody else who I didn't have a close relationship with, my response would have been to uh, discuss his mother's footwear or something like that. Um, But... You know, but here I am 30 years later, and I still remember what he told me and, uh, you know, how it, it was helpful. You know, it hurt, uh, but it was helpful in that it pointed out a flaw, a character flaw that I had, and made me think about it. And I think I was able to accept it from him because I knew he cared about me. And I knew it just wasn't, especially the way he did it, it wasn't an attempt to win 
an argument. It was an attempt to improve me and to help me. And I'd like to think that it did. And so I'm grateful uh, to him for that. And the passage uh, in Scripture that we're about to look at is similar in that way. Jesus encounters a woman who is anything but a paragon of virtue. And he probes and he digs, but he does so really gently. And he gets to her heart, to her, to her broken heart, and he offers her love and, and grace and forgiveness and, and healing. And I want to take a look at that together. So let's take a look at, at John chapter 4 and uh, see Jesus' interaction uh, with this woman. So verse 1, Jesus learned that the Pharisees, uh, who were the religious leaders, had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Let me set the scene for you here. Jesus is down in this area of Palestine called Judea. It's sort of in the southern part there. And it's the area, it's kind of like the county or whatever, surrounding uh, Jerusalem. And the Pharisees are a group of religious leaders in that day, and they don't like Jesus, and they're always trying to cause difficulty for him. And so what they try to do is drive a wedge between him and this guy named John, who is John the Baptist. You, you may have heard of him. Jesus and John the Baptist were actually cousins, and they were kind of partners in ministry. So the Pharisees are trying to drive a wedge between them by creating a rivalry that really didn't exist, trying to create a rivalry between them. And so Jesus says, you know what, we don't need this at this point. So he says, I'm going up north. So he wants to go up uh, north to an area called Galilee and uh, to get away from the situation here with the Pharisees. Verse 4, John says, so he had to go through Samaria, which was a region between uh, Judea and Galilee. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob and Joseph were two of the Jewish patriarchs, uh, fatherly leaders from, from years gone by. And Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well, and it was about noon. And John is doing a couple of things here as he's, as he's, he's kind of setting the scene here and giving us these little details, like Jesus being tired from the journey, sat bound by the well. But why would he mention something like that? Throughout history, there has always been this question and this controversy. Is Jesus God? Is he man? Is he both? You know, what's, what's going on here? And John is pointing out Jesus' humanity here. God doesn't get tired and hungry. Now, John later, earlier and later, is going to talk about how Jesus is fully God. But here he's pointing out his humanity. Jesus, is, he's been walking around. It's hot. He's tired. He's thirsty. So he sits down by the well. But John is also setting up for the encounter that's about to occur with this woman where Jesus uses his thirst to get at her thirst. And you'll see just what a brilliant way Jesus does this. So verse 7, when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? Parenthetically, his disciples had gone into town to buy food. They would have been the ones that would have been expected to provide you know, food and drink for Jesus. So they'd gone into town to buy food. And uh, when the woman shows up, Jesus says, hey, can I have a drink, please? And uh, the Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan woman. You know, how can you ask me for a drink? What are you doing? Uh, because she knew that the Jews don't associate with the Samaritans. Or that could even be translated, the Jews aren't going to use cups and plates and you know, forks and knives and spoons and stuff that the Samaritans used. It's kind of like Think back to years ago uh, in this country when we, when we had uh, just incredible 
uh, racial division here, and you'd have water fountains that would say uh, blacks only, you know, or whites only, or something like that, where uh, the, where uh, African Americans weren't allowed to eat at the same restaurant that whites were allowed to eat at. That's the kind of thing that's going on here, because you see, the Samaritans were half breeds from the Jewish perspective. They're half Jew, half Gentile, or half non-Jew. They're mixed race, and, and if you or somebody you know uh, comes from a, a background, a mixed racial background, even today there's still prejudice. We don't like to talk about it, um, but very often those from a, a mixed-race background find it difficult in their relationships with, with uh, different people. And so in that day and age, the Jews would look down on the Samaritans as being racially and uh, ethnically inferior, but they also saw them as religiously inferior as well because uh, the Samaritans themselves didn't hold to the same religious traditions that the Jews did. Samaritan worship came out of the Jewish tradition, but it had departed from it uh, many years before that. And so the Jews looked down on them. So, for example, the Samaritans would hold to only the first five books of what we would call the Old Testament or what they would call the Hebrew Scriptures. Uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. All the stuff that comes after that, all the prophets and all that, the Samaritans rejected. So the Jews looked down on them as being uh, inferior uh, in, in terms of their, their religious worship. Couple that with the fact that it, Jesus is a male Jewish rabbi, and this is a female Samaritan woman. Men and women didn't mix the way that they do today, and Jewish rabbis didn't talk to women. In fact, uh, there were some rabbis who wouldn't even speak to their own wives because they were so, in their minds, inferior that it would distract them from the more important things of their lives. And so what Jesus has done here in one question, will you give me a drink, is he has blown through uh, social ethnic, uh, racial, religious, and gender barriers. This would be scandalous for people in that day. And this woman is shocked because essentially he's treating her with the dignity that she deserves as a fellow human being, but that she's never really felt, maybe from anybody in her entire life, and especially from the Jews. And, And he just blows her categories, and she can't, she can't understand this. And that's why she says, you know, why are you a Jew asking me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? Jesus answers, verse 10 says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who, who gave us this well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his flocks and his herds? You've got to understand what's going on here. We see this phrase living water and we're, we're sort of like, what does he mean living water? She hears that phrase and she hears what we might call running water as opposed to stagnant water. See, in, in those days there were you know, basically two kinds of water. There's a water that's in a well, which is, it's drinkable, but it's somewhat stagnant. And then there's water that comes out of a fresh spring, and it's running water. And he uses a phrase that at a physical level can be understood as running water. 
maybe a half a dozen times in my life I've, I've encountered something similar to this because we live in a society where you turn on the tap and out comes cold water, you know, and it's clean and it's drinkable. Or the water's delivered to your house, you know, in a, in a, in a bottle. Or you go to the store and you can buy bottled water. You know, we have it back, uh, you know, in the cafe here. But for, for the folks in first century Palestine, they didn't take water for granted. And running water was uh, really a luxury that they, they very rarely were afforded. You know, what happens, uh, a few years ago, when we were living down in Princeton, uh, the water uh, plant nearby was uh, flooded because of a hurricane, and uh, we had to boil our water for a few days. And you, you know, you, at that point, you're no longer taking it for granted, and you kind of get an idea of what it was like for them. So she's saying, you know, uh, where are you going to get this running water? You're not, like, greater than the patriarchs who dug this well, are you? You know, and what's, what's going on? And Jesus responds in verse 13, he says, Everyone who drinks this water, water here in the well, will be thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. She's still at the physical level. She's still saying, hey, you got some kind of magical water here that I'm not going to have to come back for. I'll take it, you know. Give me this kind of eternal, thirst-quenching, special water that you've got at a physical level. But Jesus is actually trying to move from the physical to the spiritual. He starts with his physical thirst, moves to her physical thirst, but now he's trying to draw her into something deeper, her spiritual thirst, and she's not getting it yet. So he does something in verse 16 that for years confounded me, and I just thought, what is is he trying to do here? He tells her, he says, go call your husband and come back here. What does that have to do with the whole water discussion? It just doesn't seem to to make sense. But as I've chewed on it, I've seen this is just brilliant in terms of what he does. First thing, at a surface level, he's doing exactly what is appropriate in terms of the social etiquette and customs of that day. He shouldn't be talking to her alone because she's a woman, he's a man, and they're not married. It's unusual for her to be coming to the well alone at that time of day. She should have been with a bunch of other women, but for some reason, we'll see what that was in a minute. She's not, and so they're interacting one-on-one, and the appropriate thing for him to say is, go get your husband, and we'll continue this conversation, because that's what they would do. But he's also about to probe and to poke and to find her real need underneath. She says, I have no husband, verse 17. And Jesus said to her, you're right when you say that you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you've just said is quite true. What he's doing is he's beginning to prod and poke and pry and dig just a little bit to get at her real need. Even in today's society, it's a little unusual for someone to have been married five times. Uh, And while it's not uh, maybe as unusual today to have someone who's living with someone who's not their husband or wife, in that society, this is scandalous. The fact that she has been married five times, is living with someone now who's not her husband, this woman has a reputation. She's got the scarlet A, you know, kind of there on her dress. And that's why she's at the well by herself. 
She's got no friends. She should be with a group of other women and that would be normal, but she's there by herself. And Jesus know this, knows this and he knows that there's something going on in her heart and he's probing and digging and trying to, to, to point out her brokenness, but in a gentle and a loving and a kind way. She has a need inside that she's been trying to fill with physical relationships with men. And uh, yet, she's never been satisfied there. She's been hurt. She's been used time and time and time again. And uh, Jesus is, is beginning to say to her, I want to meet that need that's really going on there. A couple of weeks ago, I read an article about a, a young woman who uh, apparently was living a life kind of like this woman. She would throw herself at, at any guy uh, you know, in, in the area, offer herself uh, to them, and... Um, you know, the article went on to, to, after describing that, to say somebody asked her, you know, why is it that you do that? And she said, I'm just waiting for the first guy who will say no. Just waiting for that guy who's going to say no, who's going to love me for just who I am, not for, you know, not for my body and, and so forth. She was hurting inside and she was looking for that. I think the same thing's going on with this one. Why did she have five failed marriages? Why was she sleeping around? She was looking for something and she had never found it. And Jesus knew that. And in order to get at that need, he had to prod a little bit. And it probably hurt her a little bit, but you could tell that he was doing it gently and kindly because he cared about her. But she gets a little bit uncomfortable, so she tries to change the subject in verse 19. And she says, sir, as long as we're talking about my adultery, uh, let's talk about something else. I can see that you're a prophet. Uh, Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that uh, the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. What she's doing up is bringing up this age-old controversy. It's kind of like, where should we go to church? You know, in this building or in that building? Should we worship in Jerusalem? Jerusalem, where you Jews say you ought to worship, or should we worship here in Samaria at this mountain called Mount Gerizim, where the Samaritans say we ought to worship? You know, and, and, and it's an age-old argument. We still have those kind of arguments today. And uh, she's using as a tactic, I think, to try to distract Jesus, but he just really gently keeps the focus and turns it right back to her. And he says, woman, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you don't know. We worship what we do, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father speaks. God is Spirit, and his worshipers must worship in Spirit and in truth. He's saying, you're concerned about do we worship physically here or physically there. He says, the physical isn't the issue. It's the spiritual. It's so much less important where you physically worship than what's going on in your heart. And that's, he's trying to point that out. He takes her avoidance tactic and turns it back. It's, it's kind of like what was going on with the water thing. She's focused on physical water and he wants to turn the discussion to spiritual water. She's looking for her needs to be met in a physical relationship. And he's saying, no, they need to be met in a spiritual relationship. She wants to talk about the physical location of worship and the physical trappings that go around worship. He's saying, no, 
Worship is essentially a spiritual exercise. It's one that occurs in our hearts in a relationship with God. She's looking for a physical relationship with a man. He's saying, you need a spiritual relationship with the God who created you and who loves you and who's giving himself for you. Human love and these physical aspects, physical thirst, these are all important, but Jesus is saying it's so much more important to be thinking about the spiritual love that God offers us, the unconditional, the sacrificial love that he offers. So she tries one more time, and she says, I know that Messiah, who's called Christ, is coming, and when he comes, he'll explain everything to us. She's saying, okay, okay, I hear about the controversy, but ultimately, the Messiah is the one who's going to be able to answer this controversy and settle it between you and me. And, she said, and he says, you know what? That's me. I, the one whom I'm speaking to you, am he. And he does it in a way that we can't really see it as easily in English, but in, in the language that he was speaking to her, probably Aramaic at that point, he says it in a way that's unmistakable. Do you, if you've seen either um, the, any of the stories about the uh, movies or things surrounding the Exodus event, when Israel came out of Exodus, like the Prince of Egypt or, or one of the others, the Ten Commandments, or if you've read in the Bible, you're familiar perhaps with the scene where uh, Moses is standing at the burning bush and God is appearing to him at the burning bush. And Moses says to God, who are you? So I can tell the Israelites who you are. What's your name? And God says, I am. I am who I am. That's what Jesus says to her. He says to her, I am the one who is speaking to you. It's kind of awkward in English. That's why it's translated a little bit differently. But he uses that phrase and he says to her, I am. You asked me, am I greater than Jacob? You're not greater than Jacob, our father who gave us this well, are you? And he says, I am. And she's like, oh my goodness. This is the God of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob. And he is greater. And she gets it. And we're going to see that in just a minute. But at that point, kind of the comic relief occurs. And his disciples return. And they're, they're surprised to find him talking with a woman. And, and I, I've got this picture in my mind where, there's, you know, where they're saying to one another, you ask him. No, you, why, why is he talking to a woman? I mean, it's a Samaritan woman. You ask him. I'm not going to ask him. You ask him. You know what's going on? Hey, Mo, you know, hey. What's, you know, and, and, but nobody dared to ask him, why, what do you want? Or why are you talking with this woman? And at this point, when his disciples return, the woman just takes off. She leaves her water jar. She's so excited, verse 28. She goes back to the town and says to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Everything I ever did. I mean, she's basically saying, hey, here's a guy who knows everybody I've slept with and all this sort of stuff. Could this be the Messiah? She's getting it. She's finally come to the place where she realizes that Jesus is the one that they've been looking for. And she says, is this the guy we're looking for? The guy who's going to meet our needs, the one whom God has sent to to rescue us uh, from our need, from our sin, from our brokenness. And she's so excited that she runs back and, and all her shame and guilt is gone. And she just says, hey, come see this guy who told me everything that I ever did. Notice what Jesus has done. If you kind of just work your way through the passage again real fast, we won't flash up on the screen, but we'll just, just kind of go through it. He starts off and he treats her with dignity and respect. Something that nobody else has probably ever done, uh, at least recently, if, if ever in her entire life. And that just disarms her. He cuts through those social barriers, those ethnic barriers, the racial, the religious, the gender barriers, 
treats her in a way that shows her dignity and respect. And that just totally, totally disarms her. And then he goes further and he gently probes. He hits her brokenness. He hits her sin. He hits her shame. But he does it in a loving way. He's built up that trust. And, and he reaches there. He doesn't minimize her sin. I mean, he doesn't say, eh, it's not a big deal what you've been doing. None of that. He says, I know what you've done, but I still love you. And I still want to offer you grace and forgiveness and this living water. He doesn't minimize her sin. He maximizes his love and his grace. And he offers himself to her. She's looking for a man to meet her needs. And he says, I'm offering you myself in a relationship with, with my father as meeting your deepest need. She thinks her deepest need is physical. He says, it is so much deeper, you don't even know. And I'm here, and I want to meet that need. And finally, she gets it, and she responds in faith. And I love that question that she asks of the, of the people in the town. She says, could this, could this be the Messiah? Could this be the one that we're looking for? Can this be the one that we've been waiting really for centuries uh, for? And uh, that's the question really that we need to, each of us as individuals, ask ourselves really on a, in some sense on a daily basis, you know, who is this Jesus? Who is this one who we encounter in the pages of the New Testament, especially in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, the first four books of the New Testament? Is Jesus the one who really knows who I am? who really knows what's behind the way that I act, uh, behind the arrogant way that I treated my roommate, you know, what's, what's really going on there, behind the way that we treat one another, the, behind the things that we're ashamed of, who knows our brokenness and who loves us in, in spite of that, and who's offering to meet those deepest needs that we have. Have, you know, the question we need to ask ourselves is, have we ever come to the point as individuals where we've recognized him as our Messiah, as our Savior, as the one who's offering us uh, that spiritual fulfillment that we can't find anywhere else? Maybe, maybe you have, and maybe uh, that's where you are today, but maybe you haven't yet. I want to encourage you, if you've never worked through that question, this would be a great time to do that. Just ask and explore and Read some in the Gospels and find out more about who Jesus is. Come talk to one of us. We'd love to, to help you kind of work through some of these things. And come to the point where you recognize that, yeah, Jesus is the one who can really meet my deepest needs. But maybe you're a follower of Christ. You've been a follower of Christ for weeks or months or years. I mean, for me, it's been, been decades. But I need to over and over and over again, in a sense, have an encounter at the well, you know, with the, the living God who's offering me living spiritual water to, to quench my spiritual thirst. Because it's so easy for me and, and for all of us, really, to lose our focus on him and to look elsewhere for our needs to be met, to look to other people or other things, to meet needs that ultimately only God himself can meet. And when we look elsewhere, there's always disappointment. And so often I find that when I have, say, difficulty in my relationship with someone else, it's because I'm expecting them to be someone who they can't be. I'm expecting them, in a sense, to be in the place of God. And they're not. They can't meet all the needs that I have. And I need to look to Christ. I need to look to Jesus 
to meet those needs. So wherever you are in the spiritual spectrum, whether you're just kind of starting out and checking out these questions and you've never really thought about it, or whether you've been a follower of Jesus really for your whole life, let me just encourage you to take one or two or three steps closer to him. Ask some questions. Let him probe. Let him poke. Let him see your heart. Let him see your soul. Let him see your brokenness and bring healing and cleansing and life and fulfillment and joy in that relationship with him. That's the kind of God that we have, a God who knows who we are, as Sophia was singing, who knows who we are, who knows where we've been, who knows what we've done, and who still loves us because that's the kind of God that he is. So let me encourage you, just trust him, follow him, and look to him to meet your needs. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, I thank you that that's the kind of God who you are, a God who knows me better than, my, than I know myself, who knows that, you know, when I'm looking for one kind of fulfillment, you know that there's even a deeper need that I have that's behind that. And, and Father, I pray that you would help me always to seek that fulfillment in you and in your son, Jesus Christ. I thank you that you know what I've done, you know where I've been, You know my flaws, my imperfections, my brokenness, and yet you still love me. I thank you that you're a God who doesn't minimize my sin and my brokenness, but who maximizes your love and your grace. And Father, I pray that I and and each of us here this morning would experience in a new and fresh and living way the love and the grace, the forgiveness, the peace, and the fulfillment that you offer us in a relationship with Jesus Christ. We pray in his name, amen.